Welcome to Life Hurts, God Heals. I'm your host, Kurt Flagel, and I just want to say thank you so much for listening to the show. It really means a lot to me. And I'm excited for what we get to talk about today. We are going to interview a good friend of mine named Andrew Anderson, who runs a ministry to homeless people called Brothers Mothers. If you're wondering why this particular topic, this discussion, and the stories Andrew is going to share with us is so important, let me just tell you, if you have ever struggled with depression, with suicidal thoughts, with self-harm of any kind, ever had a sense of abandonment, those who will wander the street with no home to go to have experienced this to a great degree. And God is working and moving in their lives. So if God is working in their lives, I hope that this show gives you the confidence to know and see that he is also working in your life. So let's not wait any longer. Let's just jump into it right now. Let me introduce you to my friend, Andrew. Thanks for being on the show with me. I really appreciate it. Nice to see you. I just want to say that and I've been saying this, but you you are really important to me. You're a person, when I first moved here, that God connected us really quickly in a surprising way. And we got to be, uh, to walk together in accountability for a good season of time. And it was powerful. It's been a while, but that's okay, because you're you're near and dear to my heart. And what you do, how God has called you, who he's called you to minister to, I have so much respect for you mm-hmm. and who you are and what, you too, what you're doing. <laughs> so it's an amazing honor for me to well, have, I, I, have I miss you. Our, I miss our time together, too, to say honestly. So, yeah. Yeah, I think we met, we met every week. Yeah, I we did. for a good, like, year or... Two, maybe. Maybe two years. Year and a half, I don't know, yeah. somewhere in there. So I'm sorry. Oh, hey, it's the way life goes, you know, and... Things have their seasons, too, mm-hmm. at times, and it's okay. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that we don't love each other, and it doesn't mean that, yeah, we're that we're not still mm-hmm. brothers. And and every time I see you, I just, I, I light up inside. Every time you walk, especially into the prayer meetings that we're a part of, when you come in, man, it's a great moment for me. Yeah, it's wonderful to hug you today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Since we didn't hug <laughs> because of COVID. <laughs> so, you know, for everyone else who doesn't know you that may be listening, uh, tell us a little bit about who you are and how you came to to the realization that the homeless is like your heart. So to be honest, like people ask me that question, you know, probably once every like three months or so. And every single time, and even people on the street sometimes, every single time I do this, I take it, and I go, oh, man, I don't know. Mm. It's, uh, when I, honestly, when I think back about my history, it confuses me, um, to be honest. So, I, yeah, I grew up in a, a very wealthy home. Like My father was an investment banker. Lived in a million dollar home um, on the beach in Newport Beach on the Balboa Peninsula. So, everything about my life was pretty wealthy. And, you know, my parents had no affinity towards the poor or the homeless. You know, my 
my father used to regularly say, those without ambition in this country should be shot. Whoa. So that was just my, you know, that was my world. It's very ambitious. Love my father. You know, we have a good relationship now. But yeah, that's uh, my concept. So when I came to know Jesus when I was 16, um, my brother, my older brother Isaac, we both thought we were Christians or Jesus followers, but we weren't. So mm. it was like, oh, I guess we're just like my parents. And so I guess we're Christians. But my brother uh, started spending time with, you know, real Christians who, like, loved each other mm. and loved the Word of God and loved to talk about Jesus. Um, so my brother quickly saw, oh, man, that's not me. And they shared with him the good news of, you know, who Jesus is and started sharing with me about that and Jesus just he started communicating to me that he loved me um, and that I didn't have to be like my father I didn't have to um, that I could just have his affection and his warmth so when I came to know Jesus I um, I think I just felt naturally just without being taught that the the homeless in my community, you know, Newport Beach. <laughs> there's people making under 500 grand, you know. <laughs> but uh, you know, there's some homeless people wandering around. But I just felt a natural. I just felt an affinity of like, whoa, the the beauty and the warmth and the affection of God belongs to them, and kind of they seemed like the best target for mm. for that sort of affection because they had so uh, so much of the opposite. So. Fast forward, so I um, did a bunch of seminary education. Um, I did a Master of Arts in Exegetical Theology in 2003 at Western Seminary. And at that point, I had volunteered at a rescue mission and I had you know, worked in group homes with troubled kids here and there. But um, I was studying the Bible because I knew that the closer I got to Jesus, the more uh, effective I was at loving people. And um, I knew that the more of Jesus I had in me and just understanding of his word, the, the better I was at really pushing my crap out of the way and being able to really love people effectively. So that's why I did a lot of seminary. <laughs> so I worked as a youth pastor for a little bit and then actually ended up going back to seminary for a Master's of Divinity in 2008. Mm. So, and that's where, so moved up to Portland to do some more school and within being in Portland for uh, you know two months and starting this new program my wife got pregnant you know and we uh, we weren't supposed to be able to to get pregnant so oh. it was a huge surprise really yeah so my wife's plumbing was supposedly uh, all messed up so we were saving money on birth control <laughs> not using it <laughs> so I was working part-time jobs we had like a big truck payment and you know living in a studio apartment and Girl got pregnant. I, I was like, I need a real job. So I uh, applied everywhere uh, to work, and I applied at this place called the Portland Rescue Mission. And it was a big, you know, classical uh, rescue mission in downtown Portland. Mm. And um, uh, I never thought I would get interviewed. Um, and it was, it was like a six-hour interview. It's very bizarre. Like role plays and, you know, psychological evaluations and... Um, and lo and behold, they hired me. So yeah, I started as a, a residential drug and alcohol counselor. So I had these mentors 
um, that's just these phenomenal men that, that really loved me beyond my arrogance and beyond my, you know, um, unfamiliarity with, like, crack cocaine and, you know, hookers and overdoses and all that whole world. You know, so 2005 to 2010 was, like, the most transformative time in my life, personally, mm. where I would um, go downtown to this, uh, this huge mission rate on Burnside Avenue Portland, Oregon, at the height of the recession, you know, back then, and, you know, I had a caseload of, like, you know, maybe 15 men that I was working with, um, and I was pretty young and dumb, I was probably in my, I was in my early 30s, um, and, you know, it was also, in the evenings, I would help manage the, um, you know, where they would uh, feed up to, like, 200 people a night, and just working with people on the street to try to help them get their needs met. So in that context, I had a few, I had a few mentors. So one, one in particular, his name is Brian Thomas, and he was this short, super buffed African American guy that genuinely just had affection and warmth for everybody. Mm. So he, um, he was, uh, you know, high pirate salesman making like six figures. Um, and after his job, he would after work, he would regularly come. This is before he worked at the mission. He would regularly come downtown and sing and share the gospel and love people in front of the mission, you know, in his suit and his tie because he grew up in Portland and, you know, the crack cocaine is uh, was a huge scourge in mm. downtown Portland, also heroin. So he had a lot of friends and, you know, everybody was cousins. He's like, what's up, cousin? Everybody was a cousin to him. <laughs> and at first I thought, why is he calling all these strangers his cousin? But I... I eventually found out most of them really were his cousins because <laughs> he had a huge family. So I eventually had his brother actually on my caseload as a chaplain. Wow. Um, but he just loved people and everybody he met. He just says, man, I love you. Um, Brian, know your wife. Like, when are you coming home? Like, you've been out here for, you know, months. Like, and I know your story. Brian, I love you. How can I help you? And he did that with everybody. And um, so, anyways, the mission hired him because he was able to speak the language of the people, and he had these like you know seminary trained you know chaplains that would just you know had difficulty understanding mm. the language of the street. So they hired him because um, they knew that God was just using him powerfully. So in the mission, Brian brought his same like affection and warmth and stability. And at first, to be honest, I thought he I thought he went too far and how he loved people that were far from God. Hmm. What do you um, mean he went too far? So we would have these staff meetings, you know, and we'd talk about the people that we were working with in the drug and alcohol recovery program. And, you know, there might be a, a you know, there's a guy who had just gone back to using crack cocaine, and um, he just had a dirty test. And, you know, without the program, we, we would have had to kick him out. Um, and Brian was always the guy who would say, you know, everybody would say, okay, we've done this for this guy, and this has been his resistance, and this is what, you know, this is what's happened, and, you know, I think he needs to leave the program. And Brian would inevitably be that guy who would say, look, I, I agree with all of you, but have we done everything possible in our power to mediate the love of Jesus to this man? Is there any stone that we have left unturned wow. in our love for this person and what we can do? And we would all look at each other and just be like, 
okay, I guess we can do this one more thing. Mm. And at first, I thought, I really did. I felt like uh, he was, like, enabling people. I just thought, like, you know, hey, he's blowing it. He's not obviously not interested in Jesus or discipleship. Yeah, so I, I um, as I worked with Brian and saw how he operated, um, I started to ask myself the question of, like, why do I not love people like that? Why is it that when I sin or I fall back into my weaknesses as, you know, or whatever, middle class, you know, early 30s man, why do I give myself the grace of God and go back to God and, you know, confess my sins, be over these men with their history of use, drug use and abuse and all their, you know, trauma, why do I not accord that same grace to them? Wow. So I I begin I began to I began to see that if the gospel does not work the gospel that I understood didn't work for them, then something wasn't wrong with them, something was wrong with my understanding of the gospel. And so that threw me back on um just the word of God and on really studying and trying to understand like who man who is Jesus? Like, what does the cross really mean? Like, what what is going on? You know, and in that in that process too, like, I became more involved with outreach, um, just leaving the building. So, I would, you know, I grew a beard at a time when it was like gross to have a beard. <laughs> so, everyone's like, "Why are you growing a beard?" I'm like, "Well, all my homeless friends, like, they don't, you know, they, I look like I'm 12 when I don't have a beard, so I could like go undercover and." hang out on the street. So I started to do that more and more, and the mission gave me more and more freedom to kind of build relationships with people outside of the mission and, you know, go to places where they showered and they ate and, you know, eat with them and hang out with them and drink coffee with them just to spend time with them. Yeah, but in that process, I I met Jesus in a different way. Like mm-hmm. I, I really began to see the righteous man fall seven times and, and gets up seven times. And that there was some men on the street that were struggling with like heroin and crack cocaine that that really did know Jesus, but were obviously very far from Christ mm. and had a lot of just self destruction and a lot of um, self hatred and you know really started to see all the trauma um, and all the all the pain that these guys walked through um, and just started to fall in love with him. So it's just this process of seeing. Um, really understanding the gospel more and more, just the, the naked, out-of-control love of the Father for a broken humanity um, really should be expressed through me to this group of people. So I just started to ask and to pray and to spend more time with, you know, Brian Thomas, you know, and I had a few other mentors that really challenged me to think rightly. You know, another guy's name is J.R. Baker. He used to say, you know, his grace is extravagantly wasteful, you know. <laughs> There's this, um, you know, there's this notion in theology that he, you know, limited atonement, yeah, <laughs> where God only died precise, like Jesus only died for the precise amount of people that were going to come to know Him. So, and um, it's this concept of, you know, um, you have the parable of the sower. Yes, I was just thinking yeah, the about parable that. of the sower, where it's like we think, we think of Jesus as, you know, He's this um, God that is, uh, He's putting seeds in the soil and see who who is going to, uh, and uh, the seed is the gospel and the soil is kind of like our hearts. Yeah. Who is going to, where is it going to grow? 
So we have this concept of God that he takes one seed and he finds that perfect, faithful soil. That person that, you know... The fruitful maybe, soil. Yeah, who's not too messed up but maybe just has a little bit of a porn addiction and is doesn't call his mom enough and, like, you know, maybe steals sometimes and when you plant that one seed and then, you know, it grows. But, but I began to see this concept of, of God is this farmer that reaches his hand into his bag of soil and throws thousands of seeds to the wind, like, gleefully, just like, yes, like, just throws seeds Hard-packed ground. Yeah. Like, you'd be an idiot from the world's perspective to, to be that farmer. Yeah, yeah. Unless yeah. you're um, limitless. Yeah, you're, that's an inefficient use of, re, of your resources. It's, you know, it's not research-based. It's not, you know, but we have God calling calling people, calling crack whores and heroin addicts, you know, people that have tried to commit suicide multiple times and long-term homeless guys calling them out um, to enjoy his presence and receive his love and to be changed. Not just to like, hey, you're homeless and an addict, so God loves you, and, but to call them, say, hey, God has the power to transform you. Not, it doesn't happen overnight. Right. Like, Will you follow Jesus and allow him to reconnect you to your strange family? To allow you to look at you know thirty thousand dollars of back pay and child support and figure out how you're going to do that, or get your license and your social security card, and you know start applying for social security benefits. Like, will you allow God to help you walk through this process? What I hear in your story is that you had to do that first. Yeah. You had to be willing to walk that long haul with them and keep throwing those seeds yeah. for them to see a picture of the long haul for themselves and God's love for them across the long yeah. haul. You know, and also... And then they have to respond. Yeah. Part of that process, too, is that I became a father. Mm. <laughs> you know, I became, I became a dad of this, this wiggly, pooping, crying little monkey named Poppy. And we were in a church community that had a really rigid philosophy of parenting. Mm. And so this is a huge part of this was like a huge part of my journey also was that all you know uh, the people that I was involved with said well okay you have a baby now you're you know co-sleeping is not God's will you can't sleep with your baby and if they're crying you you can't at night you can't pick them up because they need to learn that you're in charge and that you know they need to sleep through the nights because your sleep's really important. And then this philosophy also was um, spank for all disobedience. Mm. So if uh, if your child doesn't obey you, like you have to spank them. So Coral and I did. My wife, her name is Coral. We didn't really know that this philosophy was kind of dominant in the church mm. um, because we didn't have kids. So then when we had Poppy, we had people telling us like, well, hey, this is you know, your one-year-old daughter is like you know not listening to you. You need to spank her. Like so, Coral and I thought, well, that that's a little odd. Is that is that true? Mm. Um, so, in my process of the mission of learning uh, about about the grace of God and learning how many chances human beings need and how much reiteration of love and affection, how much that love and affection and that reiteration needs to dominate everything. It's like that concept of you just have to invest ten times more than you correct. <laughs> yeah. And, um, wow, that's a good, that's a great nugget right there. Yeah, it's like a, a, a 
connection before correction. So as I was learning downtown, I was uh, and, and learned that um, that the men and women I was working with on the street, they were open to relationship and affection and laughter and connection. And if I showed up with some sort of an agenda, mm. like, hey, man, I want this person to, like, come into the drug and alcohol recovery program at the mission, or I want to help them, you know, I'm going to be their case manager. Um, if I had some sort of crazy agenda besides just connecting with them first, it all went south to begin with. So, and just realized, too, at home, like, with my daughter, like, you know, uh, my daughter just needed naked, overwhelming oodles of affection and warmth and grace. And uh, we started to see, we ended up having to leave our, our church community because they took this uh, parenting philosophy, was, wasn't was biblical, it was, uh, it just took the freedom that were offered as parents and it made these rules because they're uncomfortable with how wiggly and poopy and cry children were. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I, I realized I, I had a a lot more power and control in me. I, I wanted, even though I didn't want to admit it, but I, um, my natural inclination was to move towards power and control in parenting, in marriage, and in working with people that were really complicated on the street. So God started to break, break me. I'm not totally broken of that, but He started to break me on that. And the, mm. the love that I saw and the freedom mm. that I saw in Brian Thomas um, and in J.R. Baker that they had, um, I just, I wanted that. And, I, and, I, and what that was was not a strategy for helping heal broken people. What they had was Jesus. <laughs> and I'm like, Jesus is like, here I am. You know, <laughs> you want some of me? Like, come and get it. So in that process, uh, I just fell in love with Jesus in a very new way, and I realized that I had, um, uh, yeah, I just fell in love with him, and that love that he, that I received from my father, I was able to start giving to people that were, that were, um, that were on the street, mm. and it was, you know, it was, you know, and I was learning, you know, good theology, and I'm super grateful for my, you know, seminary education and really understanding the heart of God through his word and able to apply that. So I was able to, like, you know, learning Greek and Hebrew at night in my seminary program and then during the day, like, really applying the heart of God to what I was doing. So it just, it, it, it worked really well. It was like this, like, epistemological interaction between knowledge and experience or knowing Knowing is not just, you know, reading a book, and knowing is not just experience, it's both. Yeah. It's like, well, I'm learning in my head, and I'm learning with my heart and my hands. So, I was full-time, you know, seminary program, full-time at work, so it's a very busy season of life, you know, like my six to two shift, and, uh, six in the morning to two in the afternoon, and then a lot of school in the evening, but that it just worked really well, where I just, uh, Oh, yeah, just really messed, the whole process really screwed me up. <laughs> in a good way. Yeah, in a very good way. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, in that process, I just really, really came to enjoy the company of people who are homeless. Yeah. And um, and in falling in love with them is a very painful process. Because, mm. you know, there's just so much, especially in downtown Portland, you know, there's 
people regularly dying or getting knifed or going back to, you know, using and overdosing. So it was a, it was an intense season. But I think since that, I just really, um, I really enjoy their company and felt like I somehow my heart got wrapped up in that world of, um, uh, of wanting to help them. And wanting to see the love of God that lives in me live in them also. Yeah. So. That's great. Homelessness is not one pool. Right. Right. It's actually twelve different streams yeah. coming into a pool that mix these waters mix together. It's mm-hmm. not one stream, I guess, feeding the pool. It's yeah. twelve. Can you talk about in some of those twelve streams? What are typically the wounds of the people in those 12 streams? Where are they coming from? What have they experienced in their lives? Okay, yeah. Um, so abandonment, sexual abuse, physical abuse. That's just the most predominant factor. Mm. Um, so maybe parents, one or both parents, or you know, or close people dying when they're really young, or drug and alcohol abuse in their, their core family. Which just uh, that just feeds you know sexual and physical abuse and abandonment. So yeah, those those sorts of wounds just uh, are are really deep and are, are really damaging. Um, it doesn't mean that you know healing is not possible, but it's a whole different you know if somebody is a, put it this way if somebody is you know a, a sophomore on a football team and they're a running back. Um, and, you know, they're doing really well and, you know, headed for a good career in football, but then they get in a, a horrible car wreck. And the guy, young man, maybe he breaks both of his arms and he breaks a leg and displaces his hip, fractures his skull, and shatters his wrist. Mm. So, and then that kid, as he's recovering in the hospital, he asks the doctor, when can I play football again? For somebody who has, who has experienced massive you know, trauma on that level, like a physical, sexual abuse, abandonment, and then all the things, all the responses that that person does also. Yeah, the emotional. Yeah, getting involved with drug and alcohol, use and abuse, and then it's just this perpetual uh, ball that just rolls down that hill. Um, And it doesn't mean that everybody's a victim. We're all a combination of perpetrators and victims. Like, we all have sin, and we have all have things done to us. But, like, like that young man, you know, in the recovering in his bed, like he's never going to walk the same again. Right. So healing is totally possible, but it's going to be in a, in a way where he's going to carry a limp. Mm. So just like this stuff that I've experienced as a kid that screws me up, um, mm. um, I'm going to walk with a limp. And God makes use of that limp, dude. Mm. He makes use of it. And it is... Um, he is the master, like God is the master craftsman. He can use, um, he can use a plastic fork to dig a hole to China. Like, and God can use any tool no matter how broken it is. And he can, he can do anything. Mm. So that's, I mean, God has to be big. He just, we have a, a beautiful and a good God. Um, but our wounds and our brokenness and our self-destruction and our self-hatred and our false beliefs and our survival lies over time, Jesus will address those and help us through the body of Christ as we're willing, symphonically. But it's, uh, 
that's not going to be overnight. Uh, yeah. Like the life change. And so I think the, the piece, too, that I had to realize over and over again is that life change looks very different in the life of a person who's carrying a lot of trauma. It doesn't mean that they, you know, they have to keep, you know, sleeping with their girlfriend because they've had a lot of trauma or they have to keep, you know, engaging in drug and alcohol abuse because they've had a lot of trauma. God still calls people to repent and he calls, you know, these to leave these areas of, you know, those are just two examples. Um, but it's a long-term process. And it's, I mean, it, and you said it yourself, it's the same with us, right? You realize it in yourself. How many times do I wander away as a middle-class guy, right, yeah. who doesn't doesn't have necessarily the same amount of trauma that they've experienced, yeah. and I wander away from God, and yet he, when I come back, he's always there to embrace me mm-hmm. and lead me further, meet me where I am, call me further on the journey, and be patient with me when I wander away again. Yeah. And that long-term process of seeking him, running away from him, if that's true of me, how much more is it true for those? Oh, yes, yeah. When you were talking about, like, their families, the sexual abuse and all that, the question I had is, what do you think the percentage is of the homeless that you've interacted with, these people, these beautiful people over the years, would you say had no concept of family at all? They were raised by strangers or what do you think that percent is is it high you know yeah right i mean over the last 15 years of working with people i I don't know i would say like at least 80 percent wow have um this concept of just have very little concept of a stable home life which is why so much of the um of the community on the street even though it's toxic is really powerful so what do you mean uh people genuinely love each other you know, there's people that have been homeless for a long time that um, they will take care of each other. Mm. They will be family to each other. And they will be that community that they've never had. Even though it might involve, you know, if somebody has run out of money is going through withdrawals on, you know, and maybe they're addicted to opiates, um, they will pool the resources to buy somebody a little bit of heroin so that they don't die as they withdraw. I mean, that's one example, but just... It's just like gang systems. You can say, you know, in inner city Chicago, why do young men, um, you know, join these gangs where they're, you know, hurting people and, you know, selling drugs? It's because it's it's all relationally mediated. Hmm. People are looking for a family. And even on the street, too, like people have this sense of, of family and of connection because they're all in it together and there's a, a code of justice and there's people that protect each other and there's, you know, it's very toxic on many levels, but it's an alternative family. Mm. And also, it's just the drugs and alcohol is the warp and woof of relational connection on the street. We're like, I'll walk by somebody that I know, and they're like, oh, hey, you know, he's a joint. You're like, here, do you want to share a beer? And I'm like, oh, thank you so much, but no, thank you. <laughs> um, so people are, uh, that's what's at the center of people's relationships. So it's why it's so hard to walk away from, you know, just drinking, you know, cheap beers all day long in the corner is because if you if you want to become sober, you lose all your friends also. Yeah. And that's very, it's a very, like I tell people that are, are beginning to 
enter into sobriety, I'm like, you know, you, at first you have a, a huge plate of depression and loneliness that you have to eat. And that's the first step towards sobriety, which is disconnecting from your friends that might care about you, but they're still invested in doing these toxic behaviors. So, so it's very hard. That's mm. where the church has a lot to learn about being that mm. community, that warm, affectionate, giving community that is, is open-armed to people. So, and um, I mean, our goal as a 501c3 nonprofit is to establish that community in downtown Slow. <laughs> you know, so we're, we're working on providing uh, just the necessary social, emotional, and spiritual support um, for this group of people so that they um, they can begin to see that there's a different way to live. So just through Jesus and through our warmth and affection and care. But yeah, I mean, the family, it's, it's all its all family. <laughs> what, so give the name of your organization. It's called, so we're called Brothers and Mothers, which is a mouthful, but it's the whole concept of um, because of Jesus, we are all the same family. And if my mom was the crazy schizophrenic lady, you know, uh, with like the hairy mustache and dressed in, you know, weird clothes, I would go see her every day. Yeah. I would listen to her ramble. I'd bring her, you know, a 32-ounce, you know, coat from 7-Eleven. And I would bring her some clean underwear and some socks, and I would I would love that lady. Yeah. And if that and God calls us to take that same level of love that I have for my family to these people that are on the street, and um, so that's our core. And there's some theology that goes along with that, like um, how the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, speaks about the stranger. That's been significant for me and um, seeing the kind of love we're supposed to give to people, and also Jesus. Um, you know everything about Jesus, but yeah, brothers and mothers is the name of our of our group. And what do you do practically, spiritually, um, to connect with the people that you see as your brothers and mothers out on the street? Got it. Yeah, so we have um, we have uh, I'll say five different outreaches at this point. So. We have a, a wonderful partnership with the local shelter at Forty Prado, and every Friday night we set up a, a huge table with um, uh, with coffee, with organic um, high-end coffee, and with hot chocolate. So we have whipped cream and sprinkles and cinnamon and honey. We have a big, you know, wooden box that says Jesus Coffee, and we have like music playing. We have Bibles and other things we give away, and so. Presently, I have about 12 volunteers that volunteer all throughout our different um, outreaches. But yeah, on Friday night, we're basically the hospitality team. Mm. And we, we're we not behind a counter. We're not, you know, serving food um, and just uh, passing out food, which is, which is great. But we're face-to-face -face with people. We're praying with people regularly. We have a little basket for prayer requests that people share what they need. Mm. And... Um, and, we, and I've known people, because I've worked for Transitions Mental Health Association and CAPSLO for the last 10 years in this county. So I know I've worked for five different programs. I have a lot of connection with people on the street. So <laughs> everybody's my cousin. <laughs> What's up, bro? And there's people that I haven't seen in years that I get to keep connecting with. Because you know, a lot of people cycle in and out. What do you mean? 
Um, you know, somebody might become homeless for maybe a month and they get a job and then they, you know, move out or they, you know, move to Texas with their aunt for, you know, a couple months for a year. Then they'll come back and become homeless again. And for Is that one of those streams that you're talking about kind of? Yeah, there's like situational homelessness where people will, you know, kind of drop into homelessness for a short period of time and then they'll leave and never be back. And there's some people that go in and out of homelessness constantly, kind of up and down and up and down. There's some people that are always homeless. So there's different, yeah, that's a different type of um, person in this, this pool of homelessness. So, so Jesus Coffee, you know, our Friday night outreach, um, that's one of them. And then we have a men's group, like a men's support group that meets twice a month. So serve people donuts and we have a Bible study where we pray for each other, we'll do some worship. I'm kind of calling people into more of a discipleship connection with Jesus mm. and with us. So... Um, uh, one of my volunteers, John Knox, who's a big mentor. John. So, yeah, he's John. amazing. So John leads that Bible study, and I just love being taught the Word of God by him. So I'm his sidekick in that Bible study. <laughs> That's um, cool. Yeah, so we have men that just need encouragement and support and prayer, and, um, and we're face-to-face. So um, during this time of COVID, we have the opportunity to sort of be this church community for this mm. group of people. So we wear masks, you know, but we're still with each other. It's wonderful. Mm. And then we have a women's support group that's led by uh, Carol Barnes, who's our treasurer, and uh, Jenny um, Jennison. And they have a big gaggle of ladies that they are in love with. And they will set this beautiful table up in the conference room that is twice a month. And pray for and love and they'll take some of them out to lunch and bring the gifts and just do life with them so it's their it's their church community where they're loving each other wow so i just carol and jenny are just I, they're my moms in christ mm. I just, all my volunteers are just way godlier than i will ever be <laughs> and um it's just been wonderful to spend time with them so that's three and then on thursdays I have a few people that have been helping me, but we'll serve Costco hot dogs and we'll have coffee. We'll meet at Emerson Park, mm-hmm. and um, uh, sometimes we'll do a Bible study. It's a different environment because it's not at the shelter. It's just kind of out in the open. So sometimes there will be room to do a little bit of a Bible study. Sometimes it's just spending time with people. Nice. So we'll do that on Thursdays, and then on Fridays I do a lot of bike outreach. So I have a bike with a big rack. And I'll have coffee and half and half and honey and all the condiments. And I'll do what's essentially um, old school home visits. So I'll ride around and I'll do pastoral care. Just see people where they're at and just, bro, it's good to see you. Can I give you some coffee? Do you want a pair of socks? How's your mom? Is this your new dog? Like, I'm so glad you just got out of jail. Like, how long are you in for? Um, And then we'll just catch up on story and I'll pray for people. So home, Friday, vi- home visits. Yeah, because, well, they're all homeless. So I'm essentially, so, okay, so previous to 100 years ago, the majority of the work week of a pastor was filled up with visiting homes. Right. And spending time with people in their home. Right. So when I say home visits, I'm just meaning, like, I'm just spending time with people that I love. Campsites, going to where you know they are, is that how it works? It's mainly Mitchell Park, Emerson Park, and the downtown area. Okay. So... The, the part, uh, like the creeks and the bridges, those are people that don't want to be found. Okay. Yeah, so I don't I don't go there. There's just a lot more prevalence of just hardcore meth use 
and it's a little more um, people that want to be left alone. They want so, to be left alone. Yeah, except at Mitchell Park. Mitchell Park has a ton of methamphetamine use, and it's you know, uh, it's pretty dark. But yeah, every area of downtown Slow has like a different kind of type of homeless person. But a lot of my Fridays is spent just going from person to person and inviting people like, hey, come see us on Thursday, or like, we're doing this and that, and you know, um, and just spending time with people mm-hmm. and sharing the good news of the gospel and praying for people and just checking up on them and I'm um, doing case management like I'll bring my little laptop computer and like you know if people need help accessing resources we'll talk about St. Vincent de Paul or Department of Social Services or the DMV or 40 Prado if they've gotten kicked out of the shelter system it'd be like how can I help you get back in yes I know you're pissed off and you're angry and you never want to go there again and you hate them and you want to burn it down but let's get you back in so how do we do that how do I help you? Um, That's great. Yeah, because I have I have a, a solid knowledge of all the resources, so I can do, you know, the case management piece, and also I love you and I'm worried about you, and how can I pray for you? Speaking of how can I pray for you, what are some stories of God moving to heal and love and heal these people who are the most wounded that I think will be helpful for us who also have wounds see that if God can heal the most wounded among us and work and love them right where they are, how could he not be doing that for us? So I think story, we're story-formed people. Like all of Scripture is God's story of ministering and relating to human beings where they're at, and which encourages us and leads us to relate to him for ourselves and see, see ourselves. So what are some stories that, could help us see ourselves mm-hmm. and God ministering to them mm-hmm. and healing them and strengthening them. Yeah. They could help us, I guess. Yeah, just thinking through. Um, I'm sure you have a lot. <laughs> yeah, so one gentleman, um, my last job was working as a, a dual diagnosis case manager through 40 Prado about a year ago. And, um, one of the, the guys that I had on my caseload, um, he just struggled struggled deeply with schizophrenia. Mm. He's a, a really sweet guy, but um, and he's a guy that doesn't really care about what people think about him and can't really be pressured to, you know, just doesn't care, but um, has a, the voices in his head are, are, are really loud. And, you know, he's been in and out of mental institutions here and there. Um, had a difficult time. So I reconnected with this gentleman um, probably about six months ago. And, uh, you know, he recently found a place to live. Yeah, I just saw him downtown, and we just reconnected and started talking and sharing life regularly. And he had this powerful desire. He's like, uh, he's like Andrew, I, I feel like I really I need to connect with God, and I don't know how. Wow, what a great confession. Very, very ballsy. And uh, definitely for a man, that's a hard thing to do, to say, like, hey, I need help. You know, I need help doing this. And I was like, whoa. Let's call him Joseph. And I said, Joseph, man, God is doing some crazy stuff in you. You would even ask that question. He's like, yeah. I, was like, I feel like I really I need to get connected. It's kind of like my only hope. Wow. You know, because he was uh, in a lot of despair. 
um, and the different men that I've worked with and women over the years who wrestle with schizophrenia, uh, you know, it's for real. Like, uh, and these voices are very loud, and they, they use some horrific profanity, and they tell them to kill themselves, hurt themselves, and to kill and hurt other people. It's kind of like very uncreative. They all say the same things. Yeah. And with different varieties of intensity. So for, for Joseph, you know, we started just spending time regularly. You know, sometimes he would show up, sometimes he wouldn't. Sometimes I would flake on him, <laughs> and sometimes, you know, so we started to spend time together. And he, uh, yeah, he decided to follow follow Jesus. He felt like in all of his, his chaos and his conflict, he felt like he felt like he really liked who Jesus was and felt like there was some hope for him. He said, he kept saying, I want to fight using his weapons because he wants to fight these voices in his head, not on his own anymore. He was losing the battle. Like he said in the past, he was like on the edge of total insanity. And he said it scared him. And he said it wanted to fight with like God's weapons. And he knew that there was hope for him and his brain and his life uh, in Jesus. So that's amazing. Yeah, it is. And just has been such a privilege to get to know him. So, um, and he had this desperate desire to get baptized. It's really crazy. He he's just like, Andrew, I really want to get baptized. And I, you know, I said, Joseph, why? Like, where is this coming from for you? And uh, and so we met. Uh, we met about four times. I took him through. You know. I took him through the 15 passages on baptism. <laughs> you know, and he ate it up. And basically, the Spirit of God had convinced him. So when I read him these passages, he's like, yes. He's like, that's why I want to get baptized. I am, I'm a new person. He's like, my old life is gone, and I want to live this new life for the Jesus. He died and rose again from the dead for me, and he's my Savior, and I want to show the world that I'm a new person. I'm like, uh, okay, that's like what the Bible says. <laughs> you know, so it was awesome to see the Spirit of God teaching this guy. So, you know, we met four times. I'm like, all right, bro, you're ready to get dunked. So I baptized him two weeks ago. Wow. In the, the ocean of Mora Bay in front of a lot of our crew. And uh, he's joining us for things, my family, for Thanksgiving tomorrow. I just hear in that the power of God greater than mental illness. So God is grabbing people as they're they're falling over this cliff of suicide and self-hatred. And he's periodically, he's grabbing people that want to reach out and take his hand. And I, all I do is get to, in a sense, watch what God is doing. And I don't, I know that's a caricature sometimes, but I get to tell you that God is he is at work, and he is calling people out of this darkness because it is so dark. Mm. And uh, there are people that are attracted to the light. So, yeah, as I spend time with people that are, you know, deep into, you know, abuse and addiction and mental illness and loving these guys, God will bring people to our team and to myself that, that God is at work in. And so, yeah, the same thing. If, like, if he can reach my brother, you know, Joseph, then he can... He can transform a heart that is in love with gossip and materialism and sexuality. You know, mm. he, can, he can transform us and give us a new love <laughs> that puts Jesus and his love first mm. above everything. So it's been wonderful to see 
Joseph and him, you know, in symphonically he's going to go up and down as he tries to walk with Jesus in his context. He has a place to live uh, now, which is fabulous. Wow, yeah. So, but, uh, you know, it's very symphonic, like up and down. You said, you've said that word like about four times, symphonic. Oh, yes. So how, would you define that just for, so yeah, I, yeah. I'm tracking with you? Yeah, okay, so... I I said that word in the context. If you read the book of Isaiah, it's very symphonic. It'll be like talk about the beauty of the kingdom of God. Like you know, God is going to come back and restore everything. It's going to be the lion and the lamb. And then the next verse is like, and there is no hope, and it's all bloodshed and destruction. And you're like, oh, okay, whiplash. Like writer of Isaiah, like it'll go back and forth. So a symphony, you know, you'll have refrains where it'll. You know, you'll have a, the the tone will be pretty low and pretty somber, and then you'll have an explosion of noise and horns, and then yeah, it'll go back the down. And, yeah, crescendo. So peaks and valleys, peaks and valleys, peaks and valleys. Okay. So the peaks and valleys with people who are coming out of homelessness are a lot more extreme than us uh, socioeconomic middle upper middle class. There's not always those distinctions don't always fit, but. I've come to expect and just love the peaks and valleys and see them as necessary. Mm. So that when somebody goes back to using or, you know, goes back to their, you know, gay or heterosexual lover and just says, I'm not a Christian and I don't want to walk with Jesus and I'm just going to do meth and kill myself and be like, oh, bro, I love you. Like, hey, let's go get coffee. <laughs> you know, and just realizing God is at work and people really don't have the concept of a God that is in love with him and is ready for them to repent and doesn't co-sign to their self-destruction or their sin, but as a truckload of warmth and affection for them the moment they're ready to turn themselves toward Christ, even in a small way. So he's, his love is there for them in the peaks and valleys. Absolutely. Just like, and I need that. <laughs> yes, I do <laughs> too. Yes. That's what I need. And so as I'm with him, I just, I'm constantly reaffirming what the Word of God says about life, that, like, I don't need more graduate education to feel successful, or I don't need more money in my bank account, or I don't need my body to look like this, or I don't need to have X, Y, and Z, or, you know, to have that, I love old Volkswagens and, you know, surfing. I don't need to be, be the best mechanic or have that 21 window bus and, you know, get barreled at the canyon and have all the locals sweat me, think I'm awesome. Yeah, it just... I have a God that is that loves me and has laid down his life for me. And with that foundation I can do anything. Wow. So and I can offer that that same love of like with that foundation and that affection, anything's possible. Sounds a lot like hope. It is. Hope not just as a intangible cross your fingers wishing kind of thing, but hope in a very powerful, practical expression. Absolutely. Being seen, as in Joseph's story, being being seen right before your eyes. Yeah, yeah and it's it's um it's justice. Every last drop of my perversity and my evil and my um, self destruction, he has paid for it. He knows it more than deeper than I do. He knows it well, and he is not afraid of it. And he's paid for it at the cross. Mm. And so. And he into um, a new life, yeah, resurrection. Yep. And so, and not only is do I get mercy, not getting what I deserve, which is you know um, the wrath of God. He also gives me grace, which is undeserved affection and warmth, and power, and power. Yes, and power to overcome all this garbage. But I get all of it immediately just because of Jesus. Yeah. And so, 
that power is at work and you know and in everybody so i can yeah it is hope yeah to wrap this up what i would ask is like i mean i'm inspired and I'm, I'm i'm filled with hope and I would I would say people probably listening to this are are going to be as well. And usually when what I found is when hope comes in, then we want to act, we want to respond. And so there may be people who are listening to this who want to respond and be a part of this and partner. Mm-hmm. You know, and who aren't local, some maybe are, but who aren't local. So how can people partner? With brothers and mothers. Yeah, we sometimes call ourselves like the Bromo Collective. I love that. Yeah, we have, uh, you know, multiple people from different churches. So we're like a collective of people just bent on loving the homeless. Yeah. Yeah, so there's three different ways you can get involved. Like, number one is praying. Number two is volunteering. Another one is uh, just partnering with us financially. So I love our volunteer team, and it's super important to me to invest, to train, um, and to educate. So everybody who volunteers with us, it's not like, okay, cool, here, you stand here and, like, love that homeless guy, good luck. So there's a lot of um, education that goes along with it because um, it's it's a different people group, and I understand that it can be complicated and challenging. Mm-hmm. So my goal with our volunteer team is to partner with them for their own growth as they meet Jesus in a new way. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, volunteering, and then we have a group of about 60 people that pray for us on a regular basis. And I'll send out updates, you know, once to twice a month of just stories and pictures and, you know, videos um, just to let everybody know what I'm experiencing and what God is doing with some theology and some kind of social justice investigations also. So, and then partnering financially, definitely. So we're a 501c3 crowdfunded nonprofit. Mm. So all of our activities is... um, you know, are, are funded by people that love what God is doing in our midst and want to be a part of that. So, I mean, the way you can do that, um, number one, like I'll just say my phone number. So my phone number, 805-903-2510. Okay. So, yeah, I, it's just it's my number. You can call me and we can chat about it or you can email me. So our email is bromo for slow at gmail.com so b-r-o-m-o the number four and s-l-o at gmail.com so if people are interested i can put them on a prayer list and i can send them our website address and that's so, where they can give through as yeah well. and they can give if they want to give um i can send them my uh the address for our website so we can give online and we have a lot of um kind of stories and our history on our website also that's awesome man this has been amazing and i really appreciate you coming and and just being vulnerable to share your struggles and the things that you're experiencing with us because it does it does change things it does give i mean it it gives hope and i sense power in this so speaking of power would you mind praying for those who could be listening to this, who identify with the pain and the wounds mm-hmm. that you've talked about? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Just, I, I will, and I'll just say that um, we're trained, I think, in our culture to, to have this us and them mentality, to say, to look at the, the world of poverty and homelessness and um, pretend like we don't understand 
sexual abuse or pretend that like just because I have a home and I'm married that I don't understand abandonment. Yeah. I don't understand self-hatred or, you know, we're too ashamed to say, yeah, I sometimes think about suicide. Yeah, mental illness. Yeah, mental illness. Like all these pieces of like, yeah, waking up at three in the morning and feeling hopeless and meaningless. And so we have a long way to go as the as the Christian church to acknowledge how messed up we are. Mm. <laughs> yeah, so I'm constantly coming face to face with that on our volunteers and just to be able to say, yeah, Jesus already knows every piece of who we are and he is in love with us mm-hmm. and he understands our waverings mm-hmm. and calls us to walk with him closely. Mm. So, and that's where we're going to find healing is through his presence and through his body. I'm always seeing salt. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. so awesome. Yeah. Jesus, thank you, Lord, that thank you for the cross that is this incredible invitation. Lord, that I am married with the lowest and the highest forms, you know, socioeconomic classes on, on our planet. Lord, we are all the same in that we are desperately in need of you, Lord, that we are lost orphan children trying to figure out life and trying to move forward and not knowing how many times. Father, thank you for your out-of-control warmth and affection. What were you saying about God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. Mm. Lord, you are rich in mercy. You're compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. Lord, you know our frame that we're just us, and like a father's compassion on his children, so the Lord is compassionate on those who fear him. Lord, we need you. I pray for people who are listening, Lord, that they would know, Lord, that you are you are thrilled, Lord, beyond belief, when your children um, move towards you, just like the the father and the prodigal son. You didn't, he didn't wait around to, to see whether his son's repentance was legitimate. He ran full force towards his boy because he was so happy to see him. Mm. Father, please clean us from our theology that says that you are ashamed of us, Lord, and that you want us to go away and work hard to clean ourselves up and then to come back. Lord, uh, I love you, Lord, and I pray that you would meet everybody who's listening including myself, Kurt. Yes. Lord, we need you, Lord. So thank you for the opportunity just to talk about your beauty and your affection. And, uh, I pray for everybody who's listening that you would meet them deeply, knowing that uh, out of your love you laid down your life for everybody. Mm. And you have a pretty powerful invitation to do life in relationship with them. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Andrew. This has been a real privilege and a pleasure. And a good excuse just to hang out. Yeah, (laughs) Not that we need it, but... You need it. And maybe maybe we'll uh, get an update in the future. We'll get to hang out again and do this again. And hear more stories, because that one story was powerful. Yeah. So, yeah, maybe. Yep, let me know. Yeah, that'd be great. Take care.